Colossians chapter 2, verse 8 through 15, verse 20 through 23. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world, rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith and in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins, and in this uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations, indeed, have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body. But they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. The word of the Lord. There is a uh, narrative in our culture that says, if faith in God works for you, that's great, but you should keep it private. It's a very powerful narrative, and there are really good reasons that people say this. Religion has been a force of hatred, violence, and oppression in this world. So, in fact, it's really not hard at all to see just how dangerous it is when any one group of people says we're the ones that have the truth and everybody else is wrong. So even in our political context today, we're seeing how hateful and rabid people can be towards anybody that might disagree with them. So here's the question. If Christianity is just one more group of people who set themselves apart and say, we're the ones who have the truth and everybody else is completely wrong, then wouldn't it be better and, and more um, helpful for society, safer for society, if Christians would keep their faith private? I'm going to go ahead and say, maybe. 
you know, the problem is we can't turn the clock back on history and find out George Bailey style if the world would be a better place if Jesus had never lived. Personally, I'm not optimistic, but maybe. But I think an even better question is this. Wouldn't it depend on the nature of the truth that Christians claim? In other words, is every absolute truth claim inherently oppressive, or are there, is it possible that there are some truth claims, maybe even the claims of Christianity, that might actually lead to greater peace and justice in the world? This summer, we're asking the question, what if that's the true nature of the gospel? And if so, what would it look like to go public with that? Especially, what would it look like to go public in, in the two main realms that the Bible always calls followers of Jesus to live out their faith publicly in the realms of justice and in the realm of evangelism? So that's what we're doing this summer. Now, this morning, we're on week number two of four weeks in which we're looking at justice. And here's our big project today. Our culture is constantly fighting about justice, especially racial justice. And a lot of times, Christians are right in the middle of that fight, fighting about things like white supremacy, systemic racism, and critical race theory. Whoever thought you'd see articles about that on the front page of the newspaper? But here's the question. Um, how should Christians think about and navigate all these different ideologies and theories of justice? And especially, how can we do so in a way that really does lead to greater peace and justice in the world? This passage we just read shows us, it really helps us because it shows us three big things. It shows us the goodness of creation, the embodiedness of sin, and the salvation of Christ. We're going to look at the goodness of creation, the embodiedness of sin, and the salvation of Christ, okay? First, the goodness of creation. Now, this passage is part of a, a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in the ancient Roman city of Colossae. And in this passage, Paul is putting his finger on one of the main problems he's addressing in the letter. And, and you can see the problem in verse 8. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy. Now, what are these hollow and deceptive philosophies he's talking about? Because whatever they are, you notice he says it's taking people captive. It's enslaving people. Well, he gives us um, some examples of these deceptive philosophies at the end of the passage. He says, why, as though you still belonged to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. There were philosophies that were in the culture at that time, and these philosophies had infiltrated the church and were damaging people's faith. Now, here's what I really want us to see. This philosophy here it has a very negative view of the body and of physical reality. It was saying, um, if you really want to make spiritual progress, you have to live a very harsh, ascetic lifestyle. That means that there's certain things you shouldn't touch, certain foods you shouldn't eat. Don't allow your body to have any physical pleasures. All of this was part of a much larger philosophy in the ancient world that said spirituality is good, but physical material reality is bad. It said that the body and material reality was like a prison, and the ultimate goal is to be liberated from the body and, and physical reality into some kind of pure disembodied spiritual reality. 
And you realize, if you think about it, that that view is still very much a part of the way our modern world continues to think about religion and spirituality. It says that the goal is to escape material reality, whether that's by going to heaven when you die or being liberated from the karmic cycle. It's a very negative view of the body and of material reality. Or we could say it like this. It's a very negative view of creation. And even more importantly, it's the exact opposite of what the Bible teaches about creation. In Genesis chapter 1, when God creates the heavens and the earth, every time he creates something on this physical material earth, he's always saying, this is good. He says it over and over again. In fact, as long as I've been studying religion and spirituality, I have never found anything outside of the Bible that has a positive view of creation like the Bible does. Now, maybe it exists, but as far as I've ever been able to discover, only the Bible says that creation is good. Now, here's why this is so important for us. If you only remember one thing this morning, I really want to ask you, please, to remember what I'm about to tell you. This has had such a huge impact on my life, on my faith, and especially on the way that I think about what it means to be a, a public Christian, especially in a politically divided world. Do you want to know what it is? Well, are you up for a little theology? Good. I'm going to ask you to expend a few brain calories over the next few minutes, but I promise you that it's worth it. Are you ready? Okay. There's a theologian named Al Walters who who wrote a book almost 40 years ago called Creation Regained. I know it's hard to see. Um, But in this book, He says that if you really want to understand the world, if you want to understand especially what's the main problem with the world and what's the solution, he says it's absolutely crucial that you understand the difference between two things, structure and direction. Now, here's what this means. First, structure is a way of referring to the creational structure of the world, which we just saw is good. Structure is a way of talking about the world as God intended it when he created it. So that would include cultural goods like science, technology, and art. It would also include social systems and institutions like government, labor unions, schools, and marriage. And it would also include human functions like our emotions and sexuality and and our mind. All of those things have the potential for good because all of them are part of the good structure of God's creation. Does that make sense? Direction, on the other hand, refers to how we direct the things of God's good creation. In other words, we can can take the things of creation and either direct them towards God and His intentions or we can direct them away from God and His intentions. But here's the point. The creational structure is good. Our our main problem in the world is not with the structure of God's creation. Our problem is that we direct the structure of God's creation away from God and his intentions for the world. So let me give you an example. There's a movie on Netflix called The Social Dilemma. It's all about how social media alienates us and dehumanizes us all in order to make money off of us. And at the beginning of the movie, they interview several people who actually they created the technology. They've got people from Facebook, Instagram, Apple, Google, YouTube, Twitter. I mean, um, one of the people they interviewed ran the developer platform on Twitter for five years. 
Another guy co-invented Google Drive, Gmail chat, and my personal favorite, the like button on Facebook. I mean, these are the people who invented social media. They're interviewing, and at the beginning, they all say, you know, one by one, we saw so much potential for good in this. And it was accomplishing good. We were reuniting lost family members. We were finding organ donors for people. There was so much good. But then, one by one, they go down the line, and they say how harmful and destructive it became, and how each one of them left the industry because of the ethical concerns and the challenges and all of the unintended consequences. And yet, one of them was saying, you know, at at the end of the day, here's the thing, there really is no one bad guy. There's no one person that you can lay the blame uh, on this. And at that point, the interviewer asks the woman, he says, well, so what's the problem then? In fact, they ask every single one of the people they interview the same question, what is the problem then? And every single one of those people, I mean, smart people, they're geniuses, one after one, every single one of them looks helplessly into the camera lens at an utter loss for words. They know that there's a problem, and yet they have no framework for describing the problem. Friends, the Bible has a framework. It says that creation is good, that our problem is not with creation. Our problem is is with the ways that we have directed God's good creation away from Him and His intentions, including technology. Now, some of you may be thinking, well, that's all very interesting and maybe even helpful, but how does all of this, what what does it all have to do with justice and all the competing political justice ideologies in our world today? That is an excellent question, and it leads to our next point. We've just seen the goodness of creation, but secondly, we see the embodiedness of sin. And here's what this means. Remember that Paul said, uh, he's talking about this problem. Don't let yourself get taken captive by hollow deceptive philosophies. And then he gave us an example of a deceptive philosophy that said spirituality is good, material reality is bad. Now, do you see what just happened? In other words, it's a way of saying, what's our real problem in the world? Something in creation. Do you know what just happened here? Remember, all of you are trained theologians now. So you know that the problem, the real problem is never something in creation. The real problem is is our human propensity to direct the things of God's good creation away from God and His intentions for them. Which means that really all of this is just another way of talking about what the Bible calls sin. It's human rebellion against God and against his intentions for the world. In fact, maybe one of the most helpful ways of thinking about this is another word the Bible uses for sin, which is idolatry. And here's what this means. Um, Let's ask the question, what happens when we say that our biggest problem as human beings is something in creation? Let me give you an example. It's a, a little overly simplistic, and I acknowledge that, but for the sake of illustration, liberalism is a political ideology that says our main problem is something in creation, namely the demands of community. And therefore, our main solution is something else in creation, maximum individual freedom. Do you see how this works? It says our main problem is something in creation. Therefore, our main solution, really the Savior, is something else in creation. That's idolatry. It's, it's, it's making anything in creation our Savior. Do you see how this works? 
Friends, here's why this is so important. That this shows us that our real problem is never something in creation. It's always making something in creation the main problem, and then we always make something else in creation the Savior. That's idolatry. And now you realize, of course, that it's not just religion and spirituality that we do this with, is it? It's everything, including and probably especially including um, political ideologies and various theories of justice. So, for instance, there's a, a book called Political Visions and Illusions by a man named David Coises. And um, David Coises is a political philosopher, and he's also a Christian. This is by far the best book I've ever read on political ideologies from a Christian framework. Now, in the book, he's talking about various political ideologies, things like liberalism or nationalism or socialism and some others. But he's also thinking about them theologically. And here's what he says in the introduction, and I want you to notice as I read this that, that he uses the language of structure and direction that I said is so important for you to remember. Here's what he says. Ideologies locate the source of evil not in our rebellion against God, but in something structural in his creation. By failing to distinguish creational structure from spiritual direction, the followers of these ideologies tend to assume that salvation is to be found in freeing humanity from some facet of God's creation and in putting one's ultimate trust in some other facet. Ideology will set you free. That's idolatry. Something in creation is the main problem. Something else in creation becomes our savior. That's idolatry. Now, I realize that I've been asking you to expend even more brain calories over the last few minutes, and I didn't even ask your permission this time. So I want to give you some payoff and make it up to you. What does all of this have to do with justice and what it means to be public Christians? Here's the big idea this morning. Creation is not the source of sin and evil. It is the scene of sin and evil. Creation is not the source of sin and evil, but it is the scene of sin and evil. Sin and evil always manifests itself in our embodied lives in the created world. In other words, sin is never just abstract. Sin is never just something that's just kind of floating around out there in the spiritual ether. Yes, the source of sin and evil is our spiritual rebellion against God, but the scene of sin and evil is in our embodied lives in this created world. It's like a polluted river. You know, where, when you look at a river, where does the pollution come from? What's the source? It always comes from some source outside of the river. Somebody's dumping some stuff somewhere. That's the source. But where do you see it? In the river. Now, do you blame the river for the pollution? Of course not. That would be silly. The river is not the source of pollution. It is the scene of pollution. Now, here's why this is so important for us. Um, understanding all of this makes it possible for us to avoid two of the biggest mistakes that we could possibly make when it comes to thinking about justice and, and all the, the ideologies in our world. And the first mistake is this. It is to deny any systemic or cultural manifestations of sin in the world. So, for instance, Christians very often will talk about sin existing in our heart, which is true. They'll talk a lot about sin being in our heart, and what we need to have is our hearts changed, which is profoundly true. I mean, that's what Paul says in this passage, that you were dead in your sins. He's talking about spiritual death. One of the primary aspects of the gospel is that we need spiritual renewal in our hearts. That is profoundly true, but 
Notice he also says that God disarmed the powers and authorities, triumphing over them by the cross. What does that mean? If we go back to Colossians 1, Paul introduces these powers and authorities by telling us that they were part of God's original good creation. But by the time we get to chapter 2, we find out that these powers and authorities are, have, have become bad. They've turned evil, and now God had to disarm them. Now, what are these powers and authorities? Many biblical scholars and theologians will tell us that these powers and authorities are actual evil, demonic spiritual forces, but they also inhabit and they corrupt the systems and social institutions of our world. So things like politics or government or our legal systems. And that these powers and authorities will also inhabit and corrupt not just systems, not just social institutions, but, but ideologies, our cultural orders, our cultural narratives. So things like consumerism or white supremacy. So for example, many of you may have heard Christians say that racism is not a skin issue, it's a sin issue. Now that's half true. Because yes, of course, sin exists in our hearts. We've just seen that. But, but we've also just seen that sin doesn't only exist in our hearts, it exists in our individual relationships. And even beyond that, it exists in the systems and the social institutions and the cultural uh, narratives and ideologies of our world. Paul has just shown us that. So a lot of people today are fighting about critical race theory. And, and that's a huge conversation, and I'm not going to get into it, except to say this. One of my biggest concerns about critical race theory is that Christians would use it as a way of denying the existence of and avoiding any discussion of things like white supremacy, systemic racism in our culture, as though those things originate in critical race theory. They don't. Christians and theologians have been talking about those things for years. Read Frederick Douglass. Read black theologians. We, we can never make the mistake, number one, of, of denying the reality of, of sin, not just in our individual relationships, but in the systems and cultural forces of the world. Mistake number one. N mistake number two is this, that we would become captive to any one ideology as though that ideology alone has the power to explain what's wrong with the world and provide the ultimate solution. So, for instance, that, I mean, and that's what ideologies do. Again, a little overly simplistic, but if we look at some of the various ideologies in our world, liberalism would say that the ultimate solution to the world's problems is individual freedom. Capitalism would say, no, no, the real solution is the free market. Whereas socialism would say, no, no, the real solution is state-owned means of production. Every single one of these ideologies is grabbing hold of one aspect of the truth, one aspect in saying this is a problem in the world and they're providing a solution. The problem is every single one of these ideologies in and of themselves is inherently reductionistic. They're only grabbing one part of it. Friends, here's the point. As Christians, we have the theological resources to be able to listen to and learn from all of the different ideologies because please understand what I'm saying here or what, really what I'm not saying. And by the way, what David Coises in his book is not saying, we are not saying that ideologies are all bad and that they have nothing to offer us. The reality is that every single one of them is really, really good at pointing out one specific way that sin manifests itself in our embodied lives in creation. The problem is when we, um, we say that that's the only problem and the only solution, when we mistake, in other words, 
um, the scene of sin and evil for the source of sin and evil. Do you see what this means? In other words, Christians, of all people, we have the theological resources to be able to listen to and learn from ideologies, and yet at the same time to be able to see where are they reductionistic, where are they falling short. So, for instance, Paul said in this passage, don't be taken captive by human philosophy. Don't be taken captive by an ideology. And yet at the very same time, you know, Paul quoted human philosophers. He quoted a Greek philosopher in Acts chapter 17 when he was preaching the gospel in Athens. He was able to critically engage with the philosophies and the ideologies of his day. We should be able to do the same thing as Christians. But here's the point. At the end of the day, no one ideology has the power to explain what's wrong with the world and to provide the ultimate solution. No one ideology is able to provide salvation for us. And that leads to our last point. We've seen the goodness of creation. We've just seen the embodiedness of sin. But lastly, we need to see the salvation of Christ. Because here's the challenge. Um, In our culture, we rightly talk a lot about the danger of oppressive systems. And so for a lot of postmodern thinkers, they will say that one of the main perpetrators of uh, oppression in our world is what they call meta-narratives. And that's just a fancy way of talking about stories. A meta-narrative is any story that claims to be the one true story of everything, but in reality, it's a power grab. That's, that's what the postmodern thinkers say. And so our challenge is this. Um, isn't Christianity, if Christianity claims to be the one true story of reality, how is Christianity not just another story that is trying to make a power grab? It's just another oppressive ideology, another meta-narrative that's wanting to take people captive and enslave people. How is that not the case? Here's how. First of all, the gospel is the only story that rightly relocates the source of our biggest problems, not in creation, but in human rebellion against God. And Paul talks about that in this passage. He, he talks about the charge of our legal indebtedness which stood against us and condemned us. Now that phrase, the charge of our legal indebtedness, was a very specific term in the ancient world. In the ancient world, when you owed somebody something, you would fill out a form and then you would sign your name. It was basically an IOU. That's what that word means here. Basically, Paul is saying we all have an IOU with God. So whether you acknowledge it or not, every single one of us has an IOU with God that says, God, you created the world, you created me. I owe you my ultimate allegiance, I owe you everything. And yet, I have given my ultimate allegiance to something else in creation, whether it's individual freedom or sexual freedom or identity freedom, economic freedom, political freedom, whatever it might be. That means that that whenever we do that, whenever we give ourselves to something like that, rather than being free, we actually get taken captive. We become enslaved to that thing. Every couple of years, I quote that famous speech from David Foster Wallace where he basically says, everybody worships. And if you worship anything other than God, if you worship money, beauty, power, or being seen as smart, every single one of those things will eat you alive. He's saying the same thing that Paul is saying in this passage, that if we give ourselves to something, our ultimate allegiance to something in creation, it's an idol. It will enslave us. It will take us captive. Friends, the gospel is the only thing, the only story that relocates our biggest problem where it belongs, which is human rebellion against God. That means that we're all guilty before God. 
And that means that none of us get to stand in condemnation of other people. That should be the end of oppression. It should be, if we really embraced it, it should be the end of othering other people. Because the gospel is the only story that relocates our sin and evil back in the real problem, rebellion against God. But number two, the gospel is the only story that sets us free from all those things that enslave us, not by grabbing power, but by giving it up. If you go back to this passage, Paul talks about, he says how God canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness. God canceled your IOU, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, put, in other words, put them to open shame, triumphing over them by the cross. Now, that word triumph is a very um, specific word. In the ancient world, this word triumph refers to a victory parade. This was a real thing in the ancient world. In, in, in the ancient world, when one king defeated another king, he would take that king captive and then bring that king back to his city along with all the spoils of war, and they would have a victory parade. It would usually go on for days. So they would parade all the defeated king's um, wealth, all of his art, all of his weapons, all of his stuff. They would parade it through the city for days, and then at the very end of the parade, at the very end of the procession, would be the defeated king himself, stripped of his armor and his dignity. And they would march him through the street, the crowd mocking and jeering at him. You realize that is almost exactly what happened to Jesus when they crucified him, the true king of the universe. They disarmed Jesus. The word literally means to be stripped naked of your clothes and your dignity. They put him to open shame, made a public spectacle of him. The clangorous crowd mocking and jeering him. The soldiers beating and spitting on him. They led Jesus on a victory parade through the city. And all of the people, all of his enemies celebrated what they thought was a certain victory over Jesus. And finally, they nailed him to a cross and hoisted him up before all the world to see as they mocked and jeered and, 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 um, and proclaimed victory over him. They thought, all of the forces of darkness, all of the powers and authorities thought that they were getting victory. They were triumphing over Jesus when in reality, at that very moment, Jesus was triumphing over them. But he was doing so through a public Roman execution. Friends, the gospel is the one and only story that can set you free from the things that enslave you, from the things that enslave us in this world, because it's the only story that locates the real problem where it is, not in creation, but in our rebellion against God. And if that sets you free, you will be free indeed. You know, Jesus had that conversation in John chapter 8 with um, some of his Jewish brothers and sisters. They were having a spirited debate and Jesus said to them, the truth, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And when they heard that word, will set you free, they got really angry. They got really offended at him. They said, we're offspring of Abraham, Abraham and we've never been enslaved to, by anyone. And what they meant was this, even though they had been slaves in Egypt and even though they were currently under Roman oppression, they were saying, we can set ourselves free. And Jesus said, no. Anyone who sins is a slave to sin, but if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. You know, in our culture, we rightly talk a lot about centering the voices and people that have been marginalized throughout history. You realize that there is no voice, no person, no figure in history that they ever tried to marginalize more than Jesus Christ. 
which means that there is no one in the universe that human beings have ever tried to marginalize more than God. Because whenever we worship something in creation, instead of worshiping God, we're marginalizing God. But if you center the story of the gospel in your life, then you will be able to move out into the world as a vessel of true peace and true justice in the world. You'll be able to do so without pitting ideologies and people against one another, but instead you'll be able to see, hey, what do each of them get right, and how can we work together to bring the best of what they have to offer into the world? But at the same time, you will refuse to give your ultimate allegiance to any one of those ideologies. You'll see how they fall short. You will say, none of those things can set me free, but if the sun sets you free, you'll be free indeed. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that you will never allow um, creation to be fully taken captive, for creation to be fully demonized. Even though in, in our human idolatry, Lord, we worship the things of creation, Father, we praise you that you have defeated all the powers and authorities, that you have defeated all the sin, not just in our hearts, but in our relationships in the institutions and in the cultural orders of our world and that you triumphed over all of those things on the cross of Jesus and that one day you are going to reclaim, renew, and restore all of creation exactly the way that you intended it to be. Father, we pray that you would um, give us wisdom and insight and strength and spiritual healing and renewal and power that we would be able to be vessels of that one true story, the one true story of the gospel, that we would be able to move out into the world as public Christians who are able to work with others, listen to others, um, appreciate what others have to say, and be able to work for the very best things that need to be done in this world, Lord, to be able to work for justice in this world without ever giving ourselves to any one reductionistic story of the world, but instead being set free by the one true story of your gospel. For we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.